lights. Let's start with a, a video you may have seen during the Super Bowl. Marsha, what happened? Peter, hit me on the nose with a football. I can't go to the dance like this. Well, I'm sure it was an accident, sweetheart. An eye for an eye. That's what Dad always says. I never said that, honey. Shut up! Try to teach Peter a lesson. Marsha, eat a Snickers. Why? You get a little hostile when you're hungry. Better? Better. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Jan, this isn't about you. It never is! All right. I thought of that as we look at John chapter 6. Uh, Snickers satisfies. Are you hungry? Uh, what are you like when you're hungry? May not want, I, I was going to have you share that at your tables, but I thought that may not uh, uh, go over too well. But uh, what are you like when you're hungry and what satisfies you? Now, I would imagine that not many of you are hungry this morning. We always appreciate Rick bringing his donuts, and it's like a growing ministry where uh, all age groups are congregating down here around those donuts. But there's more than just physical hunger, isn't there? There's all sorts of hungers that Snickers isn't going to satisfy, that this world can't satisfy. And I want you to think about some of those. Hunger for status. Am I important? Do other people value me? The hunger for significance is huge. Do I matter? Does what I do make a difference? Will anybody care after I'm gone? Have I made my mark on this world or on those I love? Hunger for security is huge. Do I belong? Am I wanted? And the hunger for more power, for better performance for greater pleasure. I mean, it's just, that's really, when you think about uh, commercials, when you think about the world, that's what movies are about. That's the theme. It's always satisfying a hunger. But what about the hunger that meets our deepest need for satisfaction? And that's what John 6 is talking about. It's talking about spiritual hunger to know God and to be known by God. That's the deepest need. That's the need that people have we don't even realize we have it. To know God, to be known by God, and to have satisfaction that lasts beyond the grave. People have a hunger to live forever and for it to matter. And what John 6 is going to show us is that we need a miracle when there's no saving satisfaction in life. When there is no saving satisfaction in life. We talked about witnessing uh, earlier. And really, if this was the way we thought about people, what are they looking for? What are they hungering for? What is their deepest need? Sometimes we rush in with Jesus, and we're going to see in this that He's the bread of life, and we're trying to give bread of life to people that don't even know that they're hungry. They don't even know that they have a spiritual hunger. Well, let's look at John 6. It begins in, there's 71 verses here, and it is hard. I mean, because every bit of it is rich. Go home and read it this week. Uh, think on it. Meditate on it. Uh, we'll come back to it, I promise you, and do a whole series just on John 6, because there is so much in here. But today, I want you to, uh, we'll look at the miracle, and we'll see it performed, we'll see it explained, and I just want to give you a little background, because this background is in verses 1 through 4, and if it wasn't important, God wouldn't put it there in His Word. It really sets it up. So let's look at it. What's the background of the fourth sign that Jesus performs in the Gospel? 
gospel of John. Well, the first thing we're told is when did it happen? Look at verse 1. When did it happen? When after these things, Jesus went away and then the miracle takes place. Then down in verse 4 it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So go back to verse 1, after these things. This is the second time we've seen this time indicator. Look back at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, after these things. Okay, so this is an unspecified time after the performance or the miracle of the third sign that's in chapter 5. So John's wanting us to remember what just happened in John chapter 5. That's last week's lesson. But the significance of the third sign was this. Jesus enables us to overcome the disability of our sin nature, and he enables us to live holy lives before God. But we have to exercise saving faith in him and not sign faith. And we saw last week that the disabled man failed this test. He got the miracle, but he missed the Messiah. He got the sign, but he didn't want the Savior. He was made healthy, but he didn't want to be made holy. He was willing to obey the command to be healed. Hey, rise up, take up your pallet and walk. Whoa, this is great. I like the healing. But when Jesus found him later and said... You have been made well. Now, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. It apparently, he didn't obey that command. And aren't we that way? We like when God does what we want. And then he starts telling us what he wants. And we start saying, let's negotiate. And that's really what happened there. He received the miracle, but he rejected the Messiah. He experienced the sign, but he disregarded the significance. Well, we're going to see that here again in chapter 6, the same thing's going to happen. Except this time, instead of one disabled man, it's going to be 5,000 men. And most people project that means 20,000 people total. 20,000 people are going to get in on the fourth sign of feeding uh, of feeding with the bread that was multiplied, and, and 20,000 people are going to do the same thing the disabled man did. They're going to see the sign, and they're going to miss the Savior. It's also important for us to see that it's the time of the Passover feast. Why is that important in verse 4? It's important because John wants us to remember what happened the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem during a feast. Again, that's in chapter 5. There was a, a man who was healed, but he wasn't changed. Unchanging change. This disabled man, 38 years, man, he had radical change. But in his heart, nothing changed. And we also saw in chapter 5 it ended with the Jewish leaders dishonoring and rejecting Jesus. In other words, John 6, John is warning us in John chapter 6, there's going to be more of this. There's going to be more transform, uh, great change, but no change in people. There's going to be rejection of who he is. Feast time should have been a time when the Jewish leaders would see Jesus' miracles and say, Wow! You know all these things we've been celebrating? You know all these promises that we've been teaching you? Guess what? Here's the guy! This is the guy! And instead of doing that, what are they doing? They're rejecting him. They're rejecting him. They say, I don't care about your fulfillment. I don't care about who you are. We're in charge here, and we want to kill you. 
John wants us to remember what happened the last time Jesus was in Galilee in John chapter 4, the unwelcoming welcome where Jesus was received for what he could do and who he was, but they did uh, for what he for what he could do, but not for who he was. G- John's reminding us of all that's come before. He wants us to remember what happened the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem in John chapter 2, the unbelieving belief. They believed in him because of his signs, but Jesus, knowing their heart, did not believe in them. There's nothing more radical than for people to say they believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in you because he knows your heart, and he knows you're trusting in what he does for you, not who he is, and because you really need him. So all these things are being brought up by these time indicators. And it's just reminding us that back in John chapter 5, last week, the first time, it's the first time Jesus performed a miracle that there's no belief in it. There's no belief response. John chapter 5 is also the first time there's, there's hostile reaction. So all of this is indicating that, whoa, this is an intense time. There's a lot of confusion. People are believing, but they don't believe. People are being changed by miracles, but their hearts aren't changing. Jewish leaders should be rejoicing, but they're rejecting. And so you sense this time. And it explains the next question, where did he go? Okay, where did he go? Look at verses 1 and 3. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Then Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now what he's doing is, you can always... You got the Dead Sea down here, and you got the Sea of Galilee up here. You got Jerusalem over here. And Jesus is going all the way here. He's getting as far away from Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders as he possibly can. In fact, this is Gentile country over here. So he's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, why is he doing that? Because he's trying to avoid the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Why? Because what are they trying to do? They're trying to kill him. Now, is Jesus a a, a wimp? Is he scared? No. Why is he avoiding them? Not because he fears for his life, but because he's doing the will of his Father and his hour has not come. Remember, we studied that. His hour has not come. He's doing God's will and it is not time for him to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he's avoiding confrontation. But also, he's avoiding the crowds in Galilee. And why is that? Because they keep welcoming with an unwelcome welcome, right? They want him for what? His his miracles and signs and not for who he is. And so, he's trying to get here and he's getting hill country. uh, One of the other gospels called desolate area. And he's trying to get with his disciples, and he's teaching them about the kingdom, and he's trying to say, look, these people got it all wrong. The kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. I am a spiritual king. You need to stay focused on me. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is taking place during this time. So what he's doing there is he's trying to fulfill his purpose, and he's avoiding. The only problem is, as we see in the next question, who, who shows up in this chapter, it's hard to avoid the crowds. And so literally, they are flocking. They are running, and they know he's over there, and they, and, and they come to him. So he's trying to avoid them, but he can't. 
And so now we come to the question of who, who is in this miracle. And let me just throw this out, out there to you. When you study narratives like this, when you study stories like this in the Bible, almost all the Old Testament can be studied this way, and certainly the Gospels, not so much the Epistles. You just want to ask these questions. When, where, why, how, who, what? You, if you will ask those six questions, you will unlock, you will discover the real meaning of these stories even better than most commentaries, I promise you. But you've got to take the time to ask these questions. So who shows up? Well, look at verses 2 and 3. We can identify at least three and then even a fourth group that shows up later. Look at verses 2 and 3. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. What had happened in verse five or chapter 5? He had healed a man who was lame in a place by the pool of Bethsaida where there were lame people, blind people, sick people, sick people, but he only healed one. Why? Because he's not in the business of healing. He's in the business of making holy making people holy. But these guys all just want to be healed. So they follow him because they see his signs that he was performing. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, that is the mountain, mountainous area, the hill country, and there he sat down with his disciples to teach. So who's in this, who's in this story that we need to be identifying? First of all, the sovereign Savior. The sovereign Savior who is sitting there as the king, the spiritual king who is teaching his people, the sovereign savior. Jesus is the all-providing king who refuses to become a king by force. Look at, uh, we're going to jump around this chapter because there's so much in it. Look at verses uh, 12 through 15. This is after the miracle. When they were filled... His, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. So they had gotten their fill. They had eaten their fill, this 20,000 mass of people. Verse 14, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And so they're like, hey, he's someone special. What are we going to do with him? Verse 15, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So he's in this mountainous region. He performs this miracle. There's 5,000 men, 20,000 total people. Hey, 5,000 men is a pretty good guerrilla force. You can launch a pretty heavy revolt in Jerusalem against the Romans with 5,000 men who have full stomachs. Armies travel on their stomachs, right? These guys are full. They're ready. They're going to take him. Let's charge. This is the one. And Jesus is like, you guys are missing it. I'm not going to do this by force. I'm going to do it by crucifixion. Not by conquest, but crucifixion is how I conquer. And so in this mountainous region, he goes up into a mountain and avoids them because he is the sovereign Savior. Listen, Jesus refuses to become king by domination. He doesn't conquer the world by force. He conquers it by love through the cross of his, his crucifixion. Also, Jesus is refusing to be domesticated by these people. Listen, he, listen. if your king does what you say, then he, who's the real king? You. And, and let's be honest, that's the kind of God we really like. But that's not the kind of God who really saves. 
You need a sovereign Savior who tells us what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And we say, oh yes, you are the king. I am your servant. And so he does these things. So the first person, you know, the most important person is the sovereign Savior. But number two, there's those with saving faith in this miracle. There are those with saving faith. And who are they? The twelve disciples who follow Him and truly believe. But they still have some things to learn about Jesus. Aren't you glad on that? That these, these disciples have saving faith and they still don't always get it. Can anyone identify with that here? Okay? I know the right answers, but in my life, I don't always get it. Do you? Right? You know, we know He's in charge, but don't you find in your prayers you sometimes are telling Him what to do? And don't you know that He's in charge, but sometimes you read His Word and you go, I think I'll skip over that. So we have saving faith, but Jesus is there. They truly believe in Him. They still have a lot to learn. And most of all, they need to learn how saving faith works in the storms of life. And so the, the next sign that hopefully we'll get to next week is the calming of the storm. And that was meant for the disciples. But, even though they're saving faith, one of the twelve is who? Judas. One of them, Jesus says at the end of this story, uh, because Peter gets really excited about his salvation in Jesus and kind of takes credit for it. And Jesus says, slow down, one of you is a devil. Alright, so it kind of calms us down to realize, you know, saving faith is not our doing, it's his doing. Third... There are those with sign faith. And there's a lot of these. Approximately 20,000 people. The crowds who follow him. And now listen, this is what you've got to understand about John 6. Some of them are even called disciples. And yes, I put it in quotes. Because they, disciple means to follow, right? And when you're not following, what are you no longer being? A disciple. Okay? And so these guys are following, but they're following for the wrong reasons. They don't have saving faith. They have sign faith. You say, how do you know that? Because they stop following when it gets hard. Because when the handouts stop and the healings quit coming, they bug out. And I'm telling you, we're all tempted there. And that's the test of saving faith. Because when the handouts quit coming from God and the hard times come, and when the healings don't happen, and we have to face death, and we have to face the death of loved ones, then saving faith is tested, and those who are truly saved continue to follow, even when the storms are raging and the bread has run out. Man, this is powerful stuff. You see, these guys are only following for handouts and healings. They want signs, not a Savior. They want physical bread for the stomach, not spiritual bread for the soul. They want earthly pleasures that are given, not the heavenly person that gives them. And, and this is the theme through this series. It's really kind of an unexpected theme. I didn't see this developing, but this is the, this is the message for us. And so you see in verse 2, look at 6, uh, chapter 2, a large crowd followed. Why? Because they saw signs. Oh, they were disciples who followed, but they weren't true disciples. And then drop down to verses 25 through 35. Look at 25 through 35. 
uh, Jesus bugs out. You know, he takes off to the mountain, and, and, and there's a whole story on this next week. There's a lot of traveling across and running around. Hide and seek. The Savior hides and they seek. But look at verses 25 through 35. Uh, it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? In other words, why didn't you tell us where you were going? Because we have more healings and we want more bread. And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly. Now, when Jesus says truly, he's about to make a divine statement that's absolutely true. Jesus knows what's in the heart of all of us here this morning. And here's what he says. I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You are seeking earthly pleasure, not my spiritual sovereign person. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, the Father, even God, has set His seal. Listen, the salvation you need, the Father has said, satisfaction comes only one way, and it's through me. And you're working so hard for things that will never satisfy. You're looking for Snickers, and I'm a Savior. I'm a sovereign Savior, and the seal of the Father has been set on me. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? They're like, oh, there's hoops we got to jump through. We're great at hoop jumping. Give us some hoops. Give us some works. Give us some things to do. Then we'll get the bread. And here's what he says. Jesus answered, verse 29, said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him. Whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do? What then do you do for a sign so that we may believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, this is radical. Who, who, who is saying this? These are the people that just were fed. Now, give us a real miracle. Yeah, I know, I, I know you answered my prayer last week, but what are you going to do for me this week? We hate it when our bosses do that, right? We absolutely despise people that are never satisfied with our performance. And when our boss says, yeah, that was great last week, but what are you going to do for this company this week to keep yourself around? Can you imagine what they're saying to him? They are saying to him, we are only going to hang with you as long as you're meeting our needs. And I don't care about feeding this yesterday. We're hungry again today. And Moses gave us manna in the wilderness every single day. Now, chop, chop. Okay, not going to go well. Okay, number four. We could go on. I mean, they, 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 it's just this whole interaction. I'm just trying to give you a taste. There's a fourth group of people that sneak into the story, and that is those with no faith at all. Okay, there's saving faith, there's sign faith, and then there's no faith. I almost want to call it satanic uh, faith, but it's, it's really satanic works, and that's why Judas is thrown, here, thrown in at the end. He represents it. It's represented in the story by Judas and by the Jewish leaders, because here's what happens. And we'll, we'll have, and we'll work through this more next week. What happens is, he comes here to hide out. They find him. He feeds them. They want to make him king, so he runs up on a mountain alone to try to avoid them, and he ends up 
traveling across the Sea of Galilee, and he returns to Capernaum over here. They track him down. They find him. And the rest of John chapter 6 takes place in the synagogue in Capernaum, which they have dug up, they have found. You could walk where Jesus walked in that synagogue. And he is teaching, and it's repeatedly in this chapter it says the Jews. Three times it says the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. That's not the people. That's the Jewish leaders in the synagogue. And you know what? They could care less about feeding 20,000 people. They don't care about signs because they have no faith. And all they want to do is keep earning their salvation and they want to keep their position, their, their religious power, and Jesus is just getting in the way. In our grow group, we're studying a, a book called Honest Evangelism, and it talks about when you're evangelizing people, people, uh, all of us are, are tenants, we're renters, but we act like we're owners. And one of the hardest things when you, and the reason people are hostile when we evangelize is because we're telling them, you're renters and you have someone to be accountable. And then they're like, no, we're owners. Okay? The Jewish leaders were managers for the master. And he showed up and they're like, hey. In fact, Jesus told a parable about this. They said, get out of here. I want to stay in charge. And so there's conflict in this. Well, what's the point of all this? Verse 35, I think, sums up these 71 verses in John 6. Look at what's the point. Jesus said to them, I am. I am Yahweh. I am the God who fed Israel in the wilderness. I am the God who brought water out of the rock. You don't need a Moses. You need a Messiah. You need me. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling, murmuring, which is exactly, if you know anything about the story about Israel in the wilderness, what did they do for 40 years? Always complaining. Another miracle would show up. Always complain. They're replaying their history. Their hard hearts. Their unbelief. Okay, so there's, that's the background. What's that set us, set us up for? It, it, we realize, look, we need a miracle when there's no saving satisfaction in life. They were looking for temporary satisfaction. And Jesus says, look, you need a miracle a miracle of the heart where I can bring you saving satisfaction for this life and the life to come. So let's take a look at it. First of all, the sign is performed in verses 5 through 15. The sign is performed, and it all starts with Jesus asking a great question. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And the most important word in there is that little letter or that little word, we. Isn't it great that Jesus includes them? In, where are we going to buy food so these people can eat? We see the miracle. So let me give you three principles here. First of all is this. There's no problem too big to solve when Jesus is in the mix. There's no problem too big. Amen? Anybody got any problems today? Got any struggles? Listen, there's no problem in this room or even on this planet, that's not too big for Jesus to uh, fix. So let's look at verses 5 through 7, where the miracle begins. Therefore, 
See, John wants us to know everything that came in those first four verses. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was come to him, said to Philip, wouldn't you, you know, wouldn't you, poor Philip, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? But see, Jesus has given him, this is a test. So I only am jumping ahead. Jesus initiates the miracle as a test out of compassion. He's testing Philip, but he gave him the answer. Don't you love it, you seminarians, uh, you students? Don't you love it when it's an open book test, when the teacher gives you the answer? You know what the answer in this is? You know where we are going to buy food? It's me. The we is me. Me. Philip, you can't do it on your own. Jesus initiates this miracle as a test out of compassion. So let's look, uh, continue to look at verse 5, look 6. This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. He knew where it was going from. He wanted to know, Philip, do you know where it's coming from? And look at what Philip says. This, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 7. Philip answered him, Are you crazy? Okay, that's my paraphrase. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. You couldn't even get a per person for a eight months worth of wages, Jesus. Are you kidding me? I don't know what Judas has in his treasury bag over there, but it ain't. Eight months worth of wages. Now, notice what happens here. First of all, this is a test for two groups of people. First of all, it's a test out of compassion to reach the crowds. Uh, what's coming, the miracle that's coming, it's to reach the crowds and it's to convict them of their sign faith. It's to show them that they don't need physical things. They need God. They need Jesus in their life. And you know what I think is cool? is Jesus cares about lost people, doesn't he? And he has compassion. He's the one that says, these people are hungry, I care about stomachs. But he cares 10,000 times more about souls. But it's both. See, we have a God that is going to raise us up, body and soul. So he wants to feed them, but it's to convict them that what you don't really need is physical bread. What you need is me. There's so much more I could give you on this. Number two, he's doing it as a test to teach his disciples. And for them, he wants to instruct them about how saving faith needs to grow. Okay? And I'm just, that's all I'm going to say on that because next week with the walking on water, it's all about developing deeper, stronger faith in Jesus. So, what does Philip do? Let's look at it. Philip fails the test. Now, why does he fail the test? He fails it because he's only in thinking in terms of what? The size of the problem and his own lack of resources. Listen, when Jesus is testing your faith, we will fail every time when we only focus on the size of the problem and our lack of resources. Here's what Philip is thinking. He's thinking the crowd's too big. He's thinking about the size of the problem. But who is the person that asked the question? You tell me. Who's the person that asked the question? Jesus, who is the sovereign Savior. Jesus, who's already performed three other miracles and many more that aren't even recorded. Who cares about the problem, Philip? It's the size of your Savior, not the size of your problem. Amen? 
That's just good stuff. The crowd's too big, he says. And then he says the cost is too big. We don't have the resources. It would take eight months' wages, and we still couldn't give everybody a bite. But what is that to Jesus? What is that to Jesus? He's the I am God. The cost isn't too big. And then he says the need is too big because even if we had eight months' wages, everybody would only get a bite, and this crowd is looking hungry, and they're looking like Marsha, Marsha. You don't want to see 20,000 people hungry and just give them a bite, right? You ever underfed hungry people? doesn't go well. Right, moms? Okay. Now, the hunger is too great. No one's going to be satisfied. So that's the first principle. No problem's too big uh, to, to be uh, solved when Jesus is in the mix. The second principle is this. No person is too small to use when Jesus is in the mix. No person is too small to use. So the test continues. And Philip fails, so Jesus, uh, or, uh, Andrew is a bright young disciple. He decides to volunteer. So let's look at verses 8 through 13. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Okay, you know, I saw Philip flame out there. Let's, let's look at this. One of his disciples, he said this, verse 9, There's a lad here who probably means a young servant, a young slave. There's a lad here who has five barley loaves, and think of just little barley cakes, you know, just little thin, little small. Five barley cakes and two fish. And don't think of the big fish you always see in the pictures. These are like little pickled sardines. You know, these are just like a little anchovy type thing, a little snack. This is an This is a small, insignificant person with a small, insignificant snack. And he says... But then Andrew, he was doing good. And then, he, then, like all of us, he said too much. And then he says what? But what are these for so many people? Okay? So he says, Jesus, here's what we got, but it ain't, it, it ain't enough. What is this? Okay, so Andrew does better. Why does Andrew do better? Because he what? He brings what little he has to Jesus. He brings what little he has, and just like you and me, he brings it to Jesus, but he says, yeah, you don't really want this. Jesus, here I am, but I know I'm capable. I know I don't measure up. I know, I know you can't use somebody like me. So he starts out well, he finishes bad. Now, why Andrew? You know what's interesting about Andrew in the Gospels? Every time Andrew shows up, and he's already showed up once in this gospel, every time he shows up in the gospel, he's bringing someone to Jesus. Every time. Every time he shows up. You know what? If that's all you do in life, you're a success. Just bring people to Jesus. And that's the key to this miracle. The key to God satisfying your life is bring your problems to Him. Bring your resources to to him transfer your stress to him transfer your problems to him transfer your resources yeah but i don't have enough give it to him anyway and so he brings a small boy that is an insignificant servant and he brings a small lunch that's an insignificant snack now why is this important here's here's the next point little is much when jesus is in it Little is much. Is there a song like that? I don't know. Little is much. Are you going to break it out? Who's going to bust it? You going to bust it out, Kim? Okay, Chris, right there. She's like, Dad, I got my head down. Leave me out of this lesson. Little is much when Jesus is in it. 
And let me give you four principles on how this works. This is how the miracle takes place, okay? And I'm telling you, you can take these principles, you and I, and we can apply them, and it's going to work. Number one, and here's the key, little becomes much when we transfer all that you have, no matter how little it is, to Jesus. Give it all to Him. That's what happens in verse 9. Transfer that which is insignificant and little, and they put it in the hands of Jesus. What are you hanging on this morning that you are, are worrying about, stressed about, freaking out about, and you haven't put it in the Master's hands? This poor servant gave away all he had, and he came away more than satisfied. If he had held on to that snack, he'd still be hungry now. He gave away what little he had, and he got his full. I think that's a beautiful beautiful thing. Don't hold out due to fear or unbelief. Give it all to Jesus and he'll do much more than you could ever do. And you not only will have enough to be satisfied for yourself, but there'll be more for others to share with others. So transfer, transfer it all to him. Number two, Jesus will take what you transfer to him, no matter how little. So much of what we hold back is we outthink everybody. Well, I'm not going to give this to Jesus because he can't do anything with what I have. Stop that. Stinking thinking, lack of faith, wrong focus. You know what? When you give him all you are, the, the messed up parts, the good parts, the bad parts, the ugly parts, when you give him your tithe, and you say, but my tithe isn't as big as other people's tithes. No, but it's your tithe. You give him all your resources. You give it all to him, and he takes what little he has, and he does much with it. Listen, you're not too small to be used of God. Your talent's not too small. Your resources are not too insignificant. Stop talking and thinking yourself out of being used of God in this church and through this church, and just transfer your trust, transfer your resources, and Jesus will take it and make much of it. Number three, Jesus gives thanks to the Father. He gives thanks to the Father as the provider of all things. I think this is beautiful. Jesus is God, but He's man. So Jesus isn't walking around doing miracles like we think of it. You know, He's just not walking around going, zap, zip, you do this. You do. He's modeling. How you get miracles from God? You pray. And you focus on the Father, who is the source of everything. And so you see, Jesus took the loaves, verse 11, and having given thanks. Listen, Jesus is showing us how to unleash the blessings and the provisions of God, and it's through prayer. And notice, He blesses the Father. He doesn't bless the bread. He's not praying for the bread. You know, there are more anything on this planet. Forget about blessing the food. Bless the one who gave the food. Amen? It's all about our focus. We ask God to provide what we need and what only He can give. And we thank God for providing every good gift that satisfies our hunger. So prayer is vital. Thankfulness is vital. Number, You know, if you're murmuring, you're not giving thanks. And if you're giving thanks, you're not murmuring. All right? So real good tests here. Okay, fourth thing. And this is where Jesus does what only he can do. He transforms your little into much. Isn't that cool? Look at verse 11. It all happens in... I love these miracles. 71 verses and the miracle takes place in one. And we still don't even know how he did it. How did he do it? 
Anybody here know? I mean, how do you do it? Did it did it did it break off and then it just like grew back? You know, by spain, spontaneous combustion or something? Did it did did it did they give it out and? I don't know. I mean, what happened? Did it multiply in their hands? Because in the other Gospels, he, he takes breaks and he gives to them to distribute. I don't know. Now, let's be honest. We wish he would tell us. That's what we're curious about. That's what we're interested in. And it's the wrong thing to be interested in. Because what's the key to it? Not how he did it. What's the key to it? Who did it? The key is not how he did it. The key is what? Who did it? Because you and I, if we know Jesus this morning, we have connection to the same guy who did it. And guess what? I can tell you this. You look through the, the, the Bible, Jesus rarely God rarely does the same miracle the same way two times. So even if we figured out how he did it, that's not how he's going to do it. Time. And guess what? How he meets your needs is not how he meets other people's needs. The issue is not how it happens. The issue is who are you trusting to meet your needs. Isn't that good? I hope it's good. Well, oh, and let me say this. What's interesting is we don't know the miracle part. We don't know the multiplying part. But what we do know is notice how Jesus did do it. I want you to notice three things. These aren't in your notes. You can jot them down because they're worth it. He still used what was given to him by insignificant people. I think that's amazing. Okay? So, now, do you not think this man could speak food into existence? Could he not? And there was like a, a full course meal in front of everybody. But he did use. And so he wasn't lying when he said, Philip, how are we going to do this? That's good partnership. How does Jesus perform miracles? He does it using us. Good partnership. Second thing, second thing I see in this, he still did it in an orderly manner. He says, everybody sit down, calm down. We don't want a, a, a bread rock. In the other Gospels, he has them sit down in groups of 50 and 100. You know what I see that? That's good leadership. Jesus performs miracles through good leadership. Organize things. You know, you just don't wait around for God to organize people. You organize them, and God provides the miracle. Second, thirdly, he didn't want the extra food to go to waste. Now, again, this, is, this goes against, you know, we're thinking, you can produce food anytime you want. Now, as Americans, we waste food all the time. And we don't even think about it. You know why we waste food? Why do we waste food? Because we always know there's more of it. One of the biggest things that struck me when I first went to Romania and, uh, and, and, and as the country transformed and, and, and became uh, uh, more uh, viable, uh, they actually started. I, I've eaten in both homes, but also eaten at restaurants. But what I noticed was initially we just ate in homes. And then later they actually had a pizza restaurant that we could go to and we eat in a pizza restaurant. But you know what the Romanians did? Every single time they ate everything. They ate like it was their last meal. Because they had lived under communism where it was your last meal, potentially. I'd never forget the first time, and it took several trips, first time that a Romanian didn't finish his food. And let me tell you, he got hassled. I mean, they were on him. Hey, finish that. Why? Because there may not be more to come. Now, look at this. Look at verse 13, 12 and 13. 
when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. I find that amazing. This man can produce food like this, and he's saying, we're not wasting any of it. You know what that is? That's good stewardship. So how does Jesus do miracles? He does it through partnership, leadership, and stewardship. But ultimately, it's all him. I think that's just cool stuff. They had 12 baskets left over. And uh, how many disciples were there? Twelve. How many tribes of Israel were there? Jesus had enough for these 20 people of Israel, and Jesus had enough for each of us here. But you serve him, and you put him first. Okay, so that's the miracle performed. So let's look at the significance of it, because here's the thing. It's not the sign. It's the significance. And the significance is explained for us in one phrase, and it's right there in verse 35. I am the bread of life. It doesn't matter about the fish. It doesn't matter about the bread. It doesn't matter about the baskets. You know what these knuckleheads do? They forget the baskets. And they think Jesus is going to get mad. They're on the boat, headed across here, and they forget the 12 baskets. Now, I, who would like to tell Jesus, I just I forgot the wonder bread? I forgot, you know, you know that bread you were really concerned that we didn't leave? Uh, we left it. And he looks at him and he says, do you not understand who's in the boat? I'm here. I'm okay. It's okay. Okay. So, here's what I want you to see. First of all, the crowd missed the significance of the sign. They missed the significance of the sign. And man, I'm, I'm just telling you, we will do a whole series. Because there's some radical stuff here. Basically, what they do want to be because we want more bread. And Jesus says, you are seeking the wrong thing. So they missed the significance. All right? And we're just going to have to go on. So what is the significance? Jesus is, and you should be able to fill this blank in on your own. Jesus is what? He's the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life that comes down out of heaven, and everyone who comes to Him will be satisfied. And so, let me give you these. Uh, I've got the verses there. You're just going to have to read through this. I mean, I, I just... You know, last week we did the healing, and there was a whole chapter on the significance of it, and I resisted the temptation. John 6, you can't resist it. You just got to do it. You got to read through this. Because the last thing I want... Is anyone in this class, anyone under my ministry, to be deceived into thinking that they have saving faith when they're simply following Jesus for what he does for them? This chapter will work you over. Why do you follow? And the best way you find out why you follow is what will make you stop following. And you don't serve here in a local church 25 years and not see people make those mistakes. And it'll destroy marriages. It will break up families. And more important than any of that, it will put souls in danger. Not because we earn our salvation, but because we walk away from the one that gives it freely. Are you with me? What will it make you do? What will it take for you to stop following Jesus? What handout? When it stops getting, being given, will make you quit. 
What healing, when it doesn't occur, will make you quit on Jesus, His church, and His people? What getting crossways with someone or, or things just not working out the way you want? Kids not turning out the way you want? Jobs not turning out? What will make you say, oh, okay, I'm just going to... And us Americans, we're so mobile, man. We're like these people. You know, it ain't working here. Let me go over here. It ain't working here. Let me move to this city. Let me get this job. Let me find a new mate. Man, I wish we could trade. Maybe there's a way to do that. Foster? Is that... Is that <laughs> Maybe it's the foster kids. <laughs> Look. Making off. <laughs> Making off. <laughs> okay. I can be in my office. I know when the polos hit the church. It's like, man, there is a horde of people. Oh, no, it's the polo. Okay, polo kids. God bless those kids. Okay, here's what I want to give you. First of all, Jesus is spiritual bread. First thing he teaches them. And and here's the path. Let me give you the blank. Jesus is spiritual bread. Then he tells them, I'm sovereign bread. I'm supernatural bread. You're not in charge of me, bread. I came down from heaven. I am sovereign bread. Number three, Jesus is satisfying bread. What you want won't satisfy you, but I will, and I can give you satisfaction in the life to come. Number four, Jesus is sustaining bread. You have to stick with Him. You have to stick with Him. Now, I can't teach you through that. You read it. Every time He tells them more about who, what kind of bread He is, they counter Him. Every time they go... They're just, they're never satisfied. They counter him every single time. So, here's the question. How do we find saving satisfaction in life? The first thing you've got to do is pursue Jesus for the person he is, not the pleasures he gives. Pursue Jesus for the person he is. Don't just follow him for what he can do for you. When he doesn't do what you want, you keep pursuing him. That's what you got to do. Decide now who are you looking for to satisfy your soul. Number two, place your trust in the work that he's done. These people were working so hard, and the harder they worked to find satisfaction, the hungrier they got. Amen? And Jesus said, look, the work that you need to do is believe in what the Father has already done in me. You're trying to do, and it's already done. Place your faith. Man, there's a lot in this. Third, persevere in following Jesus when the bread runs out and the storms rage on. We're going to see this next week in the next sign. That's why, that's why he's stuck. You know, it's really weird. Bread, bread, bread. Walk on water. Bread, 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 bread. That's how this miracle unfolds. What's the deal with the walk on water? No teaching, nothing. Why? Because he's telling the disciples, look, it's not always bread time. It's not always food time. It's not always feasting. Sometimes the storm will rage, and you need to know that if I'm in your boat, you're okay. Amen? You're okay. Man, I'm telling you, don't stop eating the bread of life when it's hard to swallow. Humbly eat what God has provided in Jesus Christ. Trust Him today and keep on trusting Him. Obey Him today and keep on obeying Him. Treasure Him today as your greatest pleasure in life and keep on treasuring Him above every other pleasure in life until He comes and raises you from the dead. Because at the end of this story, 20,000 people walked away. 20,000.
5,000 disciples walked away so much that Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you bugging out too? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words. We're not feeding on the physical. We're feeding on your word. And we're not going to leave this word. We're going to obey it. We're going to trust it. And we're going to persevere in it. When the storm rages and the handouts stop, Jesus, we still got you. And that is enough. Amen? Man, I hope you're encouraged this morning. Pursuing. Persevere with Him. Find your pleasure in Him. Treasure Him as your greatest pleasure in life. Let's pray. Father, uh, this passage is way beyond my ability to communicate. And it's really beyond my ability to live out apart from You. This passage tells us that You draw us to Yourself. You give us your, your sons and daughters to Jesus to be saved. You're the one that secures us. You're the one that satisfies us. Salvation is a sovereign gift that you give to those that come to Jesus. And so, Father, may we transfer our problems today. And there are problems in this room. We all have them. And may we just put them in your hands, knowing that you'll take them. And as we give thanks in the midst of the storms, that you will transform that into something that will meet needs way beyond our wildest dreams. Father, I pray, may we feed on you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.